All right, well, good morning, TCBC. Um, I must say that I miss you guys. Uh, usually by now in the service, I've, I've heard kind of the rumbling or the buzz of uh, everybody greeting each other in the sanctuary, and, and I kind of miss that. And I mean, it's, it's okay to miss that. I mean, that's part of being uh, a human being and loving the, that kind of interaction. Uh, so it's a, it's a longing that God has uh, given us, and so it's it's great to enjoy it when we have it. And as you know, Steve prayed. There's nothing wrong with uh, lamenting the loss of it. Um, last Sunday in our Zoom service, Gene uh, Gill did a great job with the message, and uh, Andy and Madeline with the worship and tech team, and Steve with uh, prayers and everything else. It was a it was a tremendous effort uh, by uh, everybody. And I just want to say. If last week's service had been left up to me, uh, we, we would have been like um, doing uh, hand puppets uh, on the wall, or at least I would have, kind of in my room by myself. And so I'm just so glad to be partnering with people uh, that can accomplish a worship service. And maybe you noticed this morning what a joy it was uh, to look at all the comments in the, the chat room that everybody has uh, for each other. Uh, that is so uh, heartwarming. I really enjoyed that too. Well, let's look back to see where this uh, uh, worship uh, sermon series started uh, back in, in January. Uh, I, I said that the circumstances and experiences that we have, uh, that's not what we build our, our faith on. Uh, that's not what we grow our faith on. Rather, it's the person of Jesus Christ, uh, who he is, what he's done for us. Uh, that's our um, identity. That's what we live out of. And and we appreciate that identity. We uh, love that identity. Uh, that settles the question for us that, uh, that we are his. Uh, we don't follow him because uh, things are going well for us, uh, because sometimes they don't go well. And sometimes even when they go well, uh, we're really not sure why they're going well for us. Uh, here's what uh, Andy Stanley said. I'll, I'll, I'll remind us of this. Uh, he said, um, circumstances and experiences are not what we're to build and grow our faith on or base our relationship with God on because over time the sorrows and the tragedies of life will erode our faith and create a, a seeming randomness in our relationship with God so that uh, you just feel like you can't trust him anymore with all of that and and also because over time there are uh, temptations uh, to sinful pleasures and uh, and that will cause almost every element of our of our faith or our belief to feel, you know, extremely inconvenient. And so if our faith is circumstantial, I mean, over time, we're going to opt for some of those uh, sinful pleasures and the and uh, and and we're going to doubt God's goodness in the midst of tragedies of life. And that can become a way of life for us. And, and we don't want that. We need persevering faith, especially in light of uh, this pandemic. Uh, because the reality is that, that few of us are going to escape this season with absolutely no sorrow or sickness or losses. First uh, Peter deals with suffering, and this morning we're going to wrap the study up. Uh, and this study has been about uh, learning how to live a holy, persevering faith. Um, we've been learning how to live righteously in the face of suffering and, and persecution in various contexts and uh, Peter's last instruction here in chapter 5 is how to live holy lives with persevering faith within the community of faith, uh, within the church. Uh, the outline for our passage overall 
uh, first five verses talks about living um, as leadership or living under leadership. Uh, the next few verses has to do with uh, living in humility uh, among each other. And then also um, that uh, suffering is coming before restoration. Restoration follows. So as I uh, introduce our first passage regarding leadership, I'm going to start with a comment and then a question and an answer. So now, uh, having been in the role of a, of a leader and having served under other leaders and have followed other leaders, I can honestly say that to varying degrees, uh, these things have been a part of every leader's experience in every church that I've served in. Uh, the comment is this. It's way easier to berate a leader than it is to be a leader. And hope, hopefully every uh, you know, man and woman who steps into leadership, uh, they've thought about that before they, before they take that role. I mean, criticism of leaders, it, it just abounds. Now, the question is, uh, what kind of person uh, wants to be a leader? What kind of person would step into leadership? Uh, and there's three answers to that. Uh, there's the, the deluded and the power hungry, you know, they really want it. Uh, there's the naive and the grasping for power. You know, they want it. But most importantly, and with regards to our passage this morning, there are those whom God has gifted and called into leadership to lead, and they desire it. And it's to these men and women who uh, want God to, to transform them as a part of his work in this world, in his creation, to change the world. And, and it is these men and, and women who... Uh, want truth and peace and courage and grace to be brought to bear in churches and in cities so that people find healing and eternal life. Now, these men and women want to strengthen the church and uh, improve some part of creation, and they're going to follow God to see how he wants them to do it. So with those thoughts in mind, uh, here's what Peter says in verse 1. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you are, who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, from what Gene showed us last week at the end of chapter 4, and, and what we're going to see through verses 11, is that we're still in the context of, of suffering. And in these first five verses, Peter's uh, addressing elders and then uh, younger uh, in relationship to the elders. The direction to the leadership in verses 1 through 4, as well as to the younger in verse 5, is being referenced again in the context of suffering. And with suffering comes things like pain uh, and fear and selfishness. So this isn't some general advice where you can just take it or leave it. No, this is serious and forward-thinking instruction because suffering could continue suffering could uh, increase. Okay, show of hands on this, all right? 
I can't really see your hand, but uh, but help me out here anyway. I want you to raise your hand if you have heard about or gotten an email from our coronavirus action team. I think we call it uh, TCBC CAT. Anybody done that? Okay. All right. All right. I see that hand there. I see that hand there. Well, in my heart, I see it. So thank you. Uh, anyway, um, CAT is thinking through decisions for TCBC's future, the future health and safety and benevolence needs, and they're doing it along with Leadership Council, um, our uh, shepherding and stewardship team, and um, our staff, and they're doing that now. So if things escalate, pain and fear and confusion and selfishness will not prevail. Do you hear the wisdom in that? Well, that's exactly what Peter's doing here. Uh, here are the first three verses with kind of the, the main parts of it just separated out. Here's the elders are exercising wise oversight in these three ways. First, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have them. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter is first urging the elders, those in leadership, with regards to their leadership. Uh, Peter sees the efforts of a church, uh, the elders of a church as vital to its protection, especially in times of suffering. And so, uh, so not to, to leave these instructions um, nor his epistle uh, earthbound, Peter lifts these elders' eyes to glory, uh, the glory of Christ, when he returns for his church. And you got to love that picture of hope. So he speaks with a, a, a empathetic uh, co-laboring with these elders. With them, he's a fellow witness and a fellow partaker uh, in the earthly sufferings of Christ, as well as a future partaker uh, in his eternal glory, that, that, that picture that inspires us. So the urging of verse 1, the, the main intent of this section is wrapped up in the, the first few words of verse 2, and it's the word uh, shepherd, shepherd the flock. That's the, that's the main verb. That's the main thrust. Elders, shepherd the flock of God. Now, elders are spiritual overseers, spiritual teachers and leaders, uh, the pastors of a church, and those terms are often used um, interchangeably. Uh, and to shepherd the church means to tend it, tend to it. This includes spiritually feeding and caring and leading and guiding and protecting. Uh, this is accomplished by elders as exercising uh, oversight. That means to take charge of the primary purpose of tending to the congregation. Uh, the manner of oversight is qualified by those three phrases that we looked at. They're three set, uh, uh, kind of pairs of leadership descriptions. And basically, basically, they're sets of uh, not like this, but like that. And so let's look at the, the first one. The first pair is in verse uh, 2a. It says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So there appears to be uh, maybe a negative uh, tendency to give oversight because, you know, you just have to do it, not because you want to. I mean, that can happen. And the compulsion Peter is talking about here is the, the compulsion from people, uh, not from God. Uh, elders, leaders are on thin ice if they have to regularly be pushed or 
prodded by other people in order to shepherd the church of God well. Instead, leaders are to, to serve willingly by God's divine calling, God's compulsion. Through the moving of the Holy Spirit of God, leaders should find this active uh, incentive and, and not, have to be, not have to be forced. The second pair of descriptors is in verse 2b. It says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Uh, here it appears that negative tendencies can form to lead the church out of a desire for some kind of uh, remuneration or, or advantage, and, and that can happen too. Uh, Paul tells uh, uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, uh, he says this, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And in verse 18, the laborer deserves his wages. So you know, paying uh, pastor leaders is appropriate, but money can never be their motivation. Uh, it's a quick slide to greed and shameful gain from being preoccupied with the wages that you get. Money cannot be the measure of worth because uh, the worth of a leader comes from Christ and to be blessed with reward. So let Christ be the desire in the hearts of those who lead. Uh, may they seek his kingdom first and his righteousness, and then whatever rewards are yours, uh, you receive in heaven. And this empowers leading with uh, a desired eagerness. And that, that eagerness is leading out of uh, an exhilarating joy. I mean, just to be happy, to be given the privilege by God to serve as a leader. Uh, the term, uh, excuse me, the final pair uh, in verse three, uh, not dominating over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Uh, evidently a negative tendency can develop uh, to be an autocratic or an oppressive kind of leader, uh, leading by intimidation. And there's always a temptation to uh, power. Uh, to dominance, to uh, austere authority, but that can't become a characteristic of leadership. Uh, while there's a place for authority, uh, it's to be a gentle uh, authority. There's no place for tyrants in the church. Now, at the end of verse three, we, we read uh, being examples to God's flock. I mean, I find that uh, pretty interesting because on the one hand, elders are overseers and they have to, to get the scope over everything and you know kind of being up and seeing the big picture but on the other hand they're to to get into the flock and and be so involved in their lives that they become a pattern for others to follow so it's leadership from above and leadership from within and that's the balance and maybe the most uh, definitive quality of a spiritual leader is the example of doing both well. And then in verse four, we see the recompense uh, that is, uh, uh, that's waiting is the unfading crown of glory. Now, I'm not sure exactly uh, all that that is, but I think it's some form of shared reflection of Jesus's glory uh, in heaven. And the only thing I remember about the use of crowns uh, in heaven um, is uh, casting them down before the throne of God as an act of worship. And I think godly leaders uh, love doing that. 
And by way of personal testimony of having seen TCBC's you know, leadership council, the shepherding, the stewarding teams and, and staff and others, I mean, I'm happy to tell you that, uh, that they serve willingly and uh, eagerly, and they are great examples for us all. Uh, you're blessed to have uh, them and your new leader will be less blessed to have them uh, when he arrives. Uh, now last in this section, we have the younger. Peter shifts from the duty of the shepherd uh, to the duty of some in the flock, and it's, uh, they're, they're called the younger. Uh, the term younger certainly uh, includes uh, an age uh, distinction, but it's not hard to see characteristics that would accompany more uh, than just the younger. Uh, for the sake of time, just one thought here. Uh, it's human nature for adults, um, especially uh, the younger, to, to want to kind of pick and choose, kind of cafeteria style. Uh, maybe what they like in the manner or the direction of their leaders. Uh, but we need to question ourselves if, if we're doing that. I mean, if we're constantly judging um, our leaders, kind of deciding what we like and, and what we don't like or what we're going to listen to or what we're going to ignore, I mean, the question comes to us, are we truly following them? Yeah, that's a good thing for us to ponder. But now we're on to the, the home stretch with instruction to the whole congregation. Uh, verse 5b through 7 says this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Uh, the outline of this brief section looks like this. Uh, choose humility uh, rather than pride, and then choose peace rather than fear. Uh, this direction is for the whole congregation. And here, we're being instructed away from pride and away from fear. Pride and fear are the two sins that Peter brings out as being things that we're supposed to resist if we're going to resist the uh, evil forces of of darkness that can affect our lives. Uh, the two things he brings up are both sins. Now, that may surprise you, uh, but both these things are, are a little bit different, but they're linked. And so uh, we're going to see that in just a few minutes. So Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility, humility towards one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he ties in, uh, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Pride and anxiety, two sins. Both of them open us up to more evil. So let's look at each of these, and I'm going to sprinkle in a couple of thoughts from Tim Keller along the way. First, look at this, pride. God opposes the proud. Clothe yourself with humility. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Uh, pride here is defined as any uh, resistance to God's grace. Uh, pride is that which refuses the grace of God. Pride blocks the grace of God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace doesn't flow to the proud. Uh, so if you have, so you have grace to the degree that you've dealt with pride. Pride by its nature is uh, anti-grace. Notice it says God opposes the proud. That means that 
Pride sets you on a collision course with God's created order. Uh, pride's going to make you have hurt feelings. And then to whatever degree you have uh, that you're prideful, you're going to be irritated and envious of uh, other people, especially if they're doing better than you are. Pride leads us to compare ourselves. We're, we're always looking at ourselves. We're always looking and looking and looking, and, and pride leads us to, uh, again, just to, to compare. And this is horrible self-absorption. Uh, it will eat us alive, or as the text says, uh, it will invite the devil to do that. So to avoid that, clothe yourself with humility. That means you consciously uh, gird up and tie on humility. That means you don't just sort of contemplate and, and hope that it happens. It's not enough to wake up and say, well, I, um, I, hope, uh, you know, I, hope that, I hope that happens. I hope humility happens. Rather, we've got to consciously remind ourselves of the empowering grace of Christ and act in accordance with that grace. Remember that you're complete in Christ. Uh, in God's eyes, you don't need anything. Uh, you, don't, uh, you can't add anything to your value, uh, to the value of Jesus' work for you. Uh, and you got to remind yourself of the powerful grace and then act in accordance with that empowering grace. I mean, it's a discipline. You plan with gospel truth and you act in gospel power. Again, it's a conscious choice. It's not just a, a wait for it to happen kind of thing. So now let's quickly look at fear and anxiety and, and see what the antidote is. Uh, Gospel Coalition uh, writer and pastor uh, Joe Carter points out that some fear and anxiety is not sin, but some of it is. So listen to this. Uh, he says, depending on the context, fear and anxiety may be one of four types. Uh, a God-given emotional response for our benefit, so that's not sinful. Um, a disordered uh, physiological response that is not sinful. Uh, a natural consequence of sin. Now, when we sin, we're afraid we're going to get caught or that there are consequences, so that is sinful. Or four, sinful responses to God's providential care. And while uh, what Peter's describing for us in this passage is a sinful response to God's providential care. Uh, this anxiety here comes when we ignore that our sovereign uh, God is the one who cares for us and he will act in our behalf. Uh, John Piper sim uh, similarly notes that anxiety and, and fear are sin when it's in direct disobedience to a, a command by God. And you can see those in uh, Matthew 6 uh, and in Philippians 4, uh, where we're told that, that we shouldn't be afraid because God's going to provide. Whether, and we can look at the birds and we can um, look to the grass and, uh, and the flowers of the field and see that God is at work even there. And, and those, those have much less value to him than um, the highest order of creation, human beings. Uh, Keller, too, uh, convincingly describes anxiety and fear as, as sin when it's a refusal to humble yourself. Uh, here, uh, those stem from an overconfidence uh, in our own thinking, in our own opinions. Uh, in other words, if you're worried and anxious, if you're afraid what's coming, it's kind of like God looks at you and said, you know, I tore my son to shreds 
on the cross for you. And now you're afraid I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give you what you need. And so if you think you know how things should be going and they're not going that way, and then you're really anxious about it, that's an overconfidence in your thoughts. You thinking that you know better than God. Uh, that kind of worry is a stab at the integrity of God. Uh, it's not innocent. That's why the uh, antidote to anxiety comes right under the same uh, context as being told, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Well, we appreciate peace and, and we humbly lose our fear and anxiety when we cast them on our caring God. Uh, that means we decisively throw it on God. Uh, it's, it's his to deal with. The mechanics of it look kind of like this. On the basis of what uh, you know about God, throw it mentally, cast it on him. You can say something like, Lord, I'm thinking about your wisdom and, and I'm thinking about your love and I'm going to put my fear, my anxiety, my worry, all of that. I'm going to leave it with you. Uh, you take care of it. And then every time it comes to my mind again, uh, Father, I'm just going to cast it on you. I'm going to leave it with you again and again. It too is a discipline. It's a discipline that requires humility. So uh, we come to our last passage this morning and starting in verse eight. Um, and it reads like this, uh, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, the outline of this section looks like this. Uh, beware of the devil, resist the devil with firm faith, and then recognize that uh, after earthly suffering ends, God will restore. Now here, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Peter instructs us to be sober-minded and watchful and to resist because these truths are embedded in his life. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, uh, Peter had gone with him to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. You remember that? And with all the world kind of hanging in the balance, Peter slept. Uh, his mind wasn't ready for battle. His body wasn't prepared to be watchful. Uh, and as a result, he was ill-equipped to resist the temptation to sleep when it came to him. It's as if Jesus' gentle rebuke probably still echoes in Peter's ears. And so he's kind of sharing that with us. Remember what Jesus said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Peter now kind of commends to us a, a sober-mindedness and a, and a watchfulness and a spiritual resistance to uh, temptations in the face of suffering. So a thought 
rises according to uh, you know who or what the source of our suffering is. And, and Peter shares it here, and it's in complete agreement with the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6.12. He says for, uh, it, it, Paul says in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, Peter references the devil. And the devil himself uh, is the direct source of very little to no firsthand suffering in our lives, but he's been behind all suffering since the garden. So suffering is a way uh, that Satan, uh, through his other spiritual beings, tries to devour believers. In spiritual warfare, which is much more prevalent than uh, you and I are inclined to think about, we will suffer as evil forces kind of, you know, play our sin nature like a fiddle if we're not prepared. So God allows this suffering. We saw it back in 1 Peter 3, 17. There we read, uh, it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. That phrase there, if God wills it. So the suffering, um, uh, these jaws of the prowling lion, uh, the, uh, they're open and closed only according to what God allows. And in the midst of uh, Job's own extreme suffering of loss and grief and, and bodily unhealth, all of that handled to him by Satan, Job reminds us of this. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So be sober-minded, uh, be watchful, resist the devil. And now, I don't know about you, but when God allows suffering to come, uh, a couple of questions kind of come up in my mind, and, and maybe we're seeing them answered here in the text. Peter addresses them. One question is, uh, like, how long? How long will I suffer? Now, that may not always be the best question, right? Uh, Peter was intentionally vague in his answer here by saying that suffering would end after a little while. So how long is that? Well, he doesn't answer that. I think the point of his ambiguity is not to say exactly when, but just that it would end. So that's his encouragement. Maybe a better question for us is like, Lord, what do you want me to learn amidst the suffering? I think that's a great question. And from the text, we learn that we're not alone in the suffering. Amen? Amen? Yeah. And from our fellow TCBCers, uh, we learn that, that we have deep friendships. Amen? Yeah, amen. And those relationships mean so much to us that it's going to take a worldwide pandemic to keep us from being together. Amen? Amen. I heard those amens, at least in my heart. Uh, you know, uh, every individual's responsibility is to say no when sin presents itself in our lives. Yet the command here to resist the devil, just like the other commands, addresses you plural. 
uh, as part of a church together, we learn to, to live faithfully. Now, the last question Peter seems to answer is, is what follows our suffering? I mean, what can we be looking forward to after that? What comes after the, the suffering is that the God of all grace, he's restoring, he's confirming, excuse me, he's strengthening and he's establishing us. Now, I've got to be brief here. Peter uses four almost synonymous verbs, and, and they're all in the future to emphasize God's promise. Uh, these four uh, promises kind of rise like uh, a rhetorical crescendo. God himself will restore and establish and strengthen us and, and set us on a firm foundation. And all this happens, as the text says, in Christ. That is through our union with him. And it happens by God's eternal power. And this four-part harmony of God's powerful grace, it sings in our life right now, even in the midst of struggles in this life. Remember what Job said? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But some glorious day, when God finally sets creation right, voices are no longer going to be hindered by sin and suffering, and they will be raised from every tongue and tribe and nation and ring out the hallelujah chorus. Uh, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. So by way of application, uh, what could I direct us towards? Well, here's a couple of thoughts. First of all, uh, reach out to each other and readily forgive each other. I think you're going to find that with the stress of this pandemic, I mean, we all need the the grace of forgiveness even more. Uh, Gene and Pastor Steve brought this up with the Lord's Prayer last week. God's powerful grace empowers us to ask for these things. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Today we see that the, the God of all grace, that's verse 10, gives us the the path of drawing on Christ-centered humility uh, and peace uh, to create a highway to that forgiveness. Uh, next application, well, uh, binging on Netflix and popcorn is probably not high on my list, but uh, prayer is. So maybe you've noticed uh, TCBC is creating opportunities, to opportunities for us to play, pray collectively uh, online. So the opportunity to pray together as a church is better than ever. So more opportunities are, are coming. Uh, so parents, spouses, roommates, you know, whoever, you know, capitalize on the opportunities to pray together if you're in the same dwelling. If not, uh, take it online. Uh, let's get creative and share our prayer approaches with each other. Uh, just yesterday, um, I Marco Poloed prayers to my two uh, granddaughters. So that was, that's kind of fun for a boomer, you know, that's kind of cool. Uh, and then finally, uh, it may see obvious, but seem obvious, but you know, we haven't passed any offering plates uh, in weeks. Okay. Um, and so that, that decreases the opportunity for us 
uh, to express our generosity to TCBC and uh, the ministries. And uh, so uh, the opportunity to, um, to give has actually shrunk. And so you're going to need to be you know, uh, you know, diligent. You're going to need to be strategic. You're going to have to take the opportunities to specifically find ways to give maybe than you've given before because we're just not in the same room anymore. So take the opportunity to do that. I mean, our desire is that, uh, uh, that our missions to both local and national um, uh, continues to grow as well as being able to support all of our um, uh, immediate staff. Uh, so let's keep our mission uh, rolling to a scattered campus and community and the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as we wrap up in 1 Peter, you have, have charged both uh, leadership and the next generation and the whole congregation uh, to live in ways that uh, really is a manifestation of our faith in your son. Uh, it has very little to do with what's going on around us. We don't look to our circumstances uh, to encourage us to tell us uh, whether or not we should be living a certain way. We look to your son and we look to his power and your spirit within us uh, to strengthen us, to, to enable us to, to live peaceful, uh, courageous, and humble lives. Lord, we would ask that uh, in the rest of this week and the, the weeks to come, uh, as you provide some circumstances that kind of challenge all of us, uh, we pray that we'll be attentive to your word and to your spirit and to each other. So that not only may we care for the, the household of God, uh, but that we would become a place where uh, your spirit and your strength and your resources can minister well to the watching world around us. And we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen.